Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 36B, an interview on LBJ's Great Society with Mark Updegrove. I'm excited to welcome Mark Updegrove to the show today. Mark is the president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation and author of five books on the presidency, including Indomitable Will, LBJ and the Presidency, which is a great book and an awesome audiobook. The audiobook makes frequent use of Oval Office tapes, so you're not just reading the words, you actually get to hear them. Really cool experience. Today, Mark and I are going to discuss LBJ's domestic agenda, The Great Society, and its inspiration, its passage, and its impact today. Uh, Mark, thank you for your time. Good to be with you, Kenny. At, at a high level, what was LBJ's Great Society, and how does it compare to other presidential programs? You know, like Theodore Roosevelt's Square Deal, FDR's New Deal, JFK's you know New Frontier, and Scope and Impact. You know, so the, the, the Great Society was LBJ's vision for domestic policy. And effectively, it was a continuation of uh, FDR's New Deal. So LBJ comes to Washington in 1934. He works for a congressman for a few years. He starts to uh, immerse himself in the world of politics and becomes a congressman himself in 1937 and then would later become a senator in 1948. But he he really is schooled in, in government during the Franklin Roosevelt administration and sees what government can do to lift up the, the oppressed and the, those who have been left behind for various reasons. And when he be- becomes president, uh, he certainly wants to pick up Kennedy's domestic agenda, the new frontier, as you mentioned, Kenny, but he wants to make it much, much, much bigger. Uh, and so he considers his domestic policy a continuation, uh, essentially f- finishing what Franklin Roosevelt had begun during the, the Great Depression. And if you look at the, the mammoth accomplishments of Lyndon Johnson, it's, it's hard to argue that he, he is maybe the, the most important domestic president since FDR and maybe even more so than FDR. It is astounding what Lyndon Johnson gets done during the course of his five-year, two-month presidency. When LBJ became president, this is a guy with a really interesting legislative career in terms of what he stood for at different times. So was anybody expecting an agenda like this when he became president, or was it a surprise? I don't think there were, there were too many people who would be surprised because he had been an enormously effective legislator. Uh you know, particularly as Senate minority and majority leader in the 1950s and, and uh, into the early 60s. Uh, he was perhaps the most important and influential majority leader in history, certainly of the 20th century. There's no question about that. He had a real facility with power. He understood how power worked. And he worked effectively across the aisle, too. So during the course of the 1950s, when when Dwight Eisenhower was in the White House uh, LBJ was slamming out bill after bill after bill by having this really uh, close relationship with the White House and his Republican counterparts. So I don't think it would have been a surprise to anybody that he had the domestic agenda he did. But I think what might have been a surprise is how quickly he delved into very aggressive domestic policy, including, I think, most significantly in the first year of his presidency, continuing after the uh, 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 or jumping into the presidency after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, is how soon he pushed the Civil Rights Act forward. The Civil Rights Act had been 
proposed by John F. Kennedy in the summer of 1963. Kennedy didn't put much legislative weight behind it. He didn't put the the weight of the presidency behind right. the passage of the Civil Rights Act. I don't think he had the legislative muscle or the will to pass it. And LBJ sees the assassination of Kennedy as an opportunity to make Kennedy a martyr and to, to pass the Civil Rights Act as a tribute to our slain president, something that he would have wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, whether that was true or not, I, mean, I certainly, certainly think Kennedy would have had it in an ideal world, but I'm not sure he was willing to put political capital into the endeavor. Mm-hmm. And LBJ was, a, 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 as a master of the, the legislative process, as somebody who had an uncanny ability to understand the way legislation was passed, was able to exploit that uh, that 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 the assassination of Kennedy to get it through, but he but he did so at his political peril, just as Kennedy would have if he had yeah. put muscle yeah. behind it. And I think that was a surprise to folks that he put so much put the weight of the presidency that he had just gotten there, he right. had gotten into the office, and yet he was willing to put the entire weight of the presidency uh, into the passage of that uh, seminal legislation. You, you talked about how when he was in the Senate, he was just cranking out bill after bill. And as, as president, one of the biggest legislators. So I'm curious, how successful was he compared to other presidents in terms of getting what he wanted from Congress? As successful as anybody. You know, there are a few incredibly uh, effective presidents uh, in history. Thomas Jefferson was one. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned Franklin Roosevelt was another. Uh, Lyndon Johnson had a, a few advantages. Number one, uh, you know, again, he had he understood power. That's that, that right. was instinctive yeah. and experiential. I mean, he had been a, a congressman. He had been a legislative aide. He had been a congressman. He had been a, a senator. Uh, he had h- risen to the highest, uh, you know, levels of the upper chamber, as I mentioned earlier, as minority leader and majority leader. So that that those are important things. But I think there were also a confluence of circumstances that made it advantageous. Mm for LBJ. One is, I mentioned the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and he was able to uh, implore lawmakers to do it in Kennedy's name, to do things in Kennedy's name. This is what Kennedy would have wanted, as I mentioned before. But the other thing was, you know, when he became president in his own right in 1964, it was with a mandate of 61% of the American vote, uh, which was the, the 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 you know the biggest electoral mandate in the history of our country to that time? There were a disproportionate number of of Democrats who entered the chamber, uh, so he had these you know two thirds majorities in both the the House and Senate. Uh, that can be misleading because right. we have to remember that Southern Democrats were standing in the way of civil rights legislation, which was at the the, the top of the Great Society agenda. But nonetheless, there was there were enormous headwinds that mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson had coming into the presidency in his own right, and and uh, Johnson was t- smart enough to exploit those. Um, he knew the ephemeral nature of political capital, so when he became president in his own right with his incredibly ambitious domestic agenda, uh, he said, you know, when a president is first elected. He's a giraffe. Six months later, he's a worm. So he never rested on his laurels. He yeah. would get these mammoth domestic achievements through these, the, 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 you know, these these incredibly transformational laws. And then he would say, "Well, how are we doing on the farm bill? How are we doing on the education bill?" He would go right on to something else, and worked as hard as any president, and, and expected his aides to do so as well, mm-hmm. so he could get the most 
out of the limited time he had in the presidency, number one, but more importantly, that, that limited time he had with a, a mammoth amount of political capital. Was there a universal game plan he was bringing to each of these bills, or was it like a unique approach to each one? You know, I, Kenny, I think there was it was a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. he had a grand vision for what he wanted to achieve, but he was a pragmatist in terms of uh, his approach on any given bill. I mean, you know, there, there, the the you know, sausage making of uh, uh, of passing laws is 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 pretty intricate. And yeah. the one thing you have to give credit there are many things you should give uh, LBJ credit for, but he really instinctively understood what motivated people, uh, what their agendas were, what their you know psychological triggers were. He was a he was almost a psychologist in the way he, that he could read people. And I think that was an enormous part of his, his success, too. There was something that was called in Washington, either famously or infamously, depending on who you were talking to, the Johnson treatment. And sometimes it was physical. Yeah. You know, you knew that Lyndon Johnson was, uh, was going to win when he started breathing in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it was also psychological. It was also political. It had many dimensions, but ultimately it was enormously effective. Yeah, I, I heard a program the other day that defined a, a psychopath as somebody who like can sense someone else's emotions but doesn't feel in themselves. I'm almost like Johnson was like an, a, a political psychopath, reading other people's emotions and using them, and then total in control of his own. No, I think that's right. And, and you know, the fact is, he didn't have any other hobbies. Right. His, his soul, his 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 vocation was his advocate, his sole advocation. Yeah, you know, he did other stuff. Yeah, but usually it was it had it was political in nature. If he was having <laughs> drinks with somebody, or playing golf with somebody, or playing dominoes with somebody, frequently there was a political agenda attached to those social interactions. Uh, this is something that he loved, and he also had this fervent desire to make uh, America a better place. Yeah. I think that is at the heart of Lyndon Johnson's great society, and it's hard to argue if you if you see. Uh, what these uh, the the laws of the great society did in their time and what how they continue to affect America, it's hard to argue that again that, that Lyndon Johnson isn't one of the the most effective presidents that we have ever had. And I'd, I'd love to drill in on just even one slice of the great society, and that's civil rights. I mean, LBJ is the only person since Ulysses S. Grant to pass major civil rights legislation, and he did it numerous times. So what was his playbook? How did he overcome Southern opposition? And especially, can we elaborate on what was the impact? How did America change before and after LBJ because of what he did on civil rights? You know, it's, it's uh, LBJ's, I think, you know, he, one of the reasons he was able to rise up in politics in Texas was by towing the line on Jim Crow segregation. Right. There simply was no way to be a viable politician if you didn't do that. But I have no doubt that, it, that there was no racism in his heart. He was not an intrinsically, inherently racist person. There's just no evidence to that end. I think he might have, you know, there, there's, there uh, are those who say he used the N-word. I think he did use the N-word on occasion, but it was for political purposes. Mm. It was when he was talking to a Southern lawmaker mm -hmm. about what we need to do for uh, African-American people. And he was sort of speaking their language. Right. But when uh, Lyndon Johnson could separate himself 
from, you know, Southern Confederates uh, <laughs> as he rose the ranks in the Senate, he did so. For instance, he didn't sign the Southern Manifesto, uh, which, you know, the, the preponderance of Southern lawmakers in Washington did after the, the Brown versus Board of Education landmark Supreme Court decision, because he had at that point, I think he was minority whip and they was soon to be minority leader. Uh, he passes the first civil rights legislation since Reconstruction, as you alluded to, Kenny, in 1957. He really makes sure that that gets passed in the Senate. And it's of little importance uh, insofar as it's, it's impotent. It's right. largely toothless, yeah. except that it's symbolic. Right. It shows that there is civil rights legislation that is going through. And so when, when he becomes president, he's determined to make that civil rights legislation meaningful. And the first thing he really does, as I mentioned earlier, uh, as, as president domestically is push for the passage of the civil rights summit. In order to do so, he has to get through the, uh, the, the longest filibuster in Senate history waged by his friend and mentor, Richard Russell. And there's this great story where, you know, LBJ calls Russell into the Oval Office out of respect for his mentor and says, Dick, this, you know, I'm going to run over you. I, mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure that we get civil rights that's meaningful and that, Jim Crow finally dies. And, you know, Russell says, you know, Mr. President, I'm, I'm sure you can do that. I'm confident you could do it. I don't think Jack Kennedy could have, but I think you can. But I warn you, if you do this, you risk losing the party in the South to the Republicans yeah. and you risk losing the presidency in your own right later this year. And LBJ, this great creature of power, spent you know, practically his whole adult life toward the acquisition and exercise of power, hears him out. There's this pregnant pause, and he says, Dick, if that's the price for this bill, I will gladly pay it. And I think that story speaks volumes about Lyndon Johnson. Uh, you know, the, the fact that he, he had this opportunity to make a profound difference mm-hmm. in the area of civil rights, and he doesn't hesitate to use it. He knows he can break. Uh, he can break Russell and, and the filibuster ultimately does. The bill goes into cloture and then it gets passed with relative ease and gets signed into law on July 2nd. And as I mentioned, it, it hurts him in the South without question, not to the extent that it would in 68 and the out years, right. uh, but he still gets 61% of the vote and right. then is able to ride that mandate into uh, his his own term in office, right. his, his, uh, his own one term in office. And uh, does things that are absolutely transformational in that first year. And, and can we talk about how different life was for African Americans before and after civil rights? I mean, I'm, I'm in my 30s, and so it's it's to me it's also far away. But every now and then I can get a story from my dad, who grew up in East Texas around this time, about how in his little town there was a white pool and a colored pool, and there was a white school and a colored school and things like that. How did this change that dynamic and how quickly and what was that like? You know, effectively, it was American apartheid. There's no question about that. There were two separate societies for those of color and uh, and Caucasians. And those pools that your father may have visited, you know, the the white and color pool, they were ostensibly separate but equal but that yes. is an oxymoron right there were yeah. there was nothing equal about them the the african americans and hispanics in east texas were subjugated 
largely, and and as they were throughout the South. And ra- we, we make the mistake of thinking that virulent racism was just in the Deep South. It was all over sure. America yeah. in different yeah. forms. You just didn't have it manifestly through the Jim Crow laws that allowed for sec- separate but equal public accommodations. The Civil Rights Act puts an end to American apartheid. It puts into law uh, our most sacred creed as Americans, which is all men are created equal. We are we were formed on this basis of egalitarianism, which is at the heart of what being an American uh, is. You know, we are all treated equally, whether we got here yesterday or whether we got here 300 years ago, uh, whether we are black or white or yellow or brown. It, 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 Americans under the law uh, and uh, are, are, are treated equally, but we didn't have that in practice. We weren't living up to our most sacred creed until the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and it applied not only to uh, to race, but to religion and to gender as well. So we were a truly equal society uh, after the Civil Rights Act was signed in July of 1964. You mentioned that you don't think LBJ was racist, but I'm surprised how often when I talk to someone and I mention LBJ's name, one of the first things I'll say is he was a racist. Where do you think this idea comes from? What? Why do you think that perception's out there? And, and tied to it is, you know, I'll also see people say, oh, he only did the civil rights to get the vote, you know, like he didn't really care. So curious what you think of, of that kind of response, to LBJ, that I hear so often today. Yeah, I think the, the the fact that LBJ is was considered racist, I mean, it, it, you have to define what racism means. Mm, mm. But uh, I, I think it's utterly ludicrous. You know, it, I, as I mentioned, he, there he is on the record uh, or uh, uh, as saying the N word, not right. not publicly, but right. there are people who talk about him using the the N word. We have six hundred ninety three. Uh, uh, hours of taped telephone conversations at the LBJ library, which are the crown jewel of the archives. And there's not a single uh, utterance of that word. I think he used it very seldomly and very Mm -hmm. selectively, depending on who he was talking to. That does not make one a racist. It particularly didn't make a racist uh, in that time. Mm -hmm. You can't judge Lyndon Johnson by his words. You have to judge him by his deeds. And if you look at how he spent his capital, how what he used his presidency to push, it was legislation, not only with the civil rights, the ostensible civil rights legislation that he passed, but the other legislation too. They all had civil rights components. Hmm. He put so much weight behind civil rights. So if you look at Medicare and Medicaid, for instance, ostensibly those are healthcare bills. They were passed both, by the way, in 1965. They were both healthcare bills. But very importantly, there was uh, a component of the, the Medicare bill that desegregated hospitals. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Medicare disproportionately uh, gave advantage to those people of color. Mm-hmm. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act, for instance, is ostensibly mm-hmm. about education. But very importantly, there's a civil rights component insofar as there were so many schools, mm-hmm. particularly in the Deep South, that were uh, largely populated by people of color that were Mm. inferior, that Mm. weren't getting state funding to the same extent that white schools were getting. And so that that federal aid lifted up those schools so they could be more in line with those schools that got greater funding from the states. So there Mm. are so many examples like that. You can't look at the different categories of law 
um, yeah. and say they're just about education or just about healthcare or just about civil rights. They're interwoven. Yeah. Um, in so far as they were, they were all achieved the the goal of making a, a more fair, equitable, and compassionate society. Thank, that is really fascinating. Thank you. And speaking of Medicare, that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about. On July thirtieth, nineteen sixty five, LBJ signs Medicare into law at the Truman Presidential Library. And former President Harry Truman, age 81, was enrolled as the first beneficiary. What, what's the story behind that moment? Where did this idea for Medicare come from? You know, it really is an outgrowth of the, um, of the New Deal of yeah. Franklin Roosevelt. And it's pushed heavily that the, the, the notion of a Medicare program is pushed heavily by Harry Truman, who was defeated by principally by the the lobby of the American Medical Association. It's very, it's tantamount to say to our inability to pass meaningful mm. a gun reform today, mm. gun responsibility reform because of the power of the gun lobby. And it was the same thing with the American Medical Association, uh, which largely defeated Truman in in the d- during his term in office. And it, it, we, we have to remember too that John F. Kennedy really pushed for Medicare. In fact, there was a huge. Uh, rally at Madison Square Garden the year of of uh, Kennedy's death, where he's imploring Americans to get behind Medicare. Uh, LBJ is the one who is able to get it done, as with so many other things. But when he signs that legislation, uh, Harry Truman is still alive and kicking in, in <laughs> Independence, Missouri. Yeah. Uh, Lyndon Johnson served in uh, in Congress. Uh, while Harry and uh, both in the the the, uh, the House and the Senate, when Harry Truman was president, he wanted to pay tribute mm. for the efforts of How- Harry Truman. Uh, we we see Truman as being this mammoth now in in history, but at the time, uh, his legacy was still evolving, and I don't mm. think he was given the credit that we, then that we now give him. But Lyndon Johnson, and this is a tribute to him, yeah, goes down to uh, the Truman Library, signs Medicare in the company of, of Harry and Bess Truman, gives them the first two cards, numbers one and two, and calls Truman the real daddy of Medicare. I think it's a generous uh, gesture on the part of Lyndon Johnson saying to Harry Truman, you haven't been forgotten. Mm. We appreciate all you did for America. He did not have to do that. Lyndon Johnson could have you know, pumped right. his fist and said, this is my doing. By God, no one else could do it, but I did it. We know other presidents, recent presidents, yeah. who surely would have done that. Yeah. Uh, but but and one of the reasons that, that LBJ was, was so effective is because he did give credit where credit was due and, uh, and, and didn't always think of getting the credit. I think he probably resented it later. He did have a big ego. He did have a, <laughs> you know, lofty ambitions for his own legacy. Yeah. But um, but there are numerous examples of of doing that. That's one of the most high profile, Kenny. How was he able to overcome the American Medical Association? How was he able to do this thing that his predecessors could not do? Uh, it, partly because it was like so many other things. I think there are a confluence of circumstances that are advantageous to Lyndon Johnson. One of his is it, it's it's an idea whose time had come, just mm. as civil rights were was um, or were, and uh, I, I think. But I think it's his ability to reach across the aisle to uh, Wilbur Mills, in particular, uh, was a, a lawmaker from Arkansas who was standing in the way of that and and heads up the Rules Committee and uh, mm-hmm. is trying to get him to yield 
on on Medicare. And you can hear in those tapes that I mentioned, the telephone tapes of Lyndon Johnson, his remarkable ability to understand legislation yeah. and work with legislators to to fashion something that will be accepted by Congress, be passed in the House and Senate. He just, again, had this uncanny sense of, of what might pass. And, and a great example of that is, um, I, I mentioned the Civil Rights Act, but it's important to note that Kennedy had put in a very potent voting rights plank into the Civil Rights Act. Uh, LBJ stripped it out. And he didn't strip it out because he was not in favor of voting rights and didn't know that voting suppression was an issue, particularly in the South. He stripped it out because he knew that the bill was top heavy and Mm -hmm. it would not have passed if it Mm -hmm. were that potent, Mm -hmm. if there was that much stuff in it. So he looked at uh, civil rights incrementally. Let's get the break the back of Jim Crow now and pass voting rights when we have the opportunity to do so. And that's precisely what happened. Right. A year later, you have the March on Selma and the brutally uh, um, brutal Pettus Bridge incident where John Lewis comes within an inch Mm -hmm. of his life being beaten by Alabama state troopers. That's on television. Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson uses that moment to show the moral imperative of voting rights. And he exploits that right, to get the right. Voting Rights Act through. So it's an incremental approach. and and But he did have that sense. What is the most we can get in this bill and pass it? Mm. And I think with Medicare, it, it, it was one of those instances. And you could hear him, you could hear the legislation made. You can see the sausage being made yeah. in these tapes as he reaches across to, to Mills and works with him on what they called as this layered cake that would become <laughs> Medicare. And and we talked about how on, on civil rights, we went from basically an apartheid society to no longer an apartheid society. Medicare, what was this change in Americans' life when this was suddenly available, Medicare and Medicaid for all these elderly or poor Americans? You know, so you uh, you, you nailed it. Uh, again, ostensibly, it's a, um, a health care bill. But it's really important to note how important this is in LBJ's war on poverty. Mm. Uh, a quarter, uh, nearly a quarter of Americans, between a fifth and a quarter of Americans lived in poverty at that time. But importantly, a third of Americans over 65 lived in poverty, not having saved anything, no longer being able to work. Mm-hmm. And they were essentially put out to pasture, for lack of a better phrase, they went to old age homes where they were meant to die uh, mm-hmm. because they couldn't afford the most basic Medicare right. medical medical needs. And um, and LBJ saw that as an, an enormous injustice. So overnight, you had people who couldn't afford basic Medicare need, medical needs rather that would lengthen their lives being able to get access to that. And so the the longevity of Americans improved dramatically, and families no longer had to pour their life savings into the care of of somebody becoming bankrupt in the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a safety net in place that was absolutely invaluable then, and continues to be co- to to be invaluable in twenty first century America. Do, do we have any sense of how many people have been helped by those programs? Like it's got to be over a hundred million or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure that that's right. There, there. I, I don't know what the answer is, yeah. Kenny, and it's probably a bit nebulous because yeah. uh, of the uh, amorphous nature right, uh, right. Of, of Medicare. But it is, it is utterly 
transformational, just as uh, the, the Civil Rights Act was. But you know, the, the Civil Rights Act was more palpable. You could see uh, those separate but equal facilities right, going right, away, and there being right. one facility for for Caucasians and and uh, people of color in this country. But Medicare's effects were not as obvious, but but profoundly important. So LBJ passes all this big civil rights stuff. It's on the books, but it's still got to be implemented. You still need the people down in the South and around the country to carry out the law. And we have seen we've seen massive resistance in the South. We've seen that that's not as easy said and done. How's the implementation happen? Well, look at even more recently. Uh, we remember the the historic Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, sure. passing during the Obama administration during the first uh, year of the Obama presidency, when he had enormous capital and was trying to determine how to spend it. But we also remember the botched implementation of that. Right? It was hard for people to sign up. There were bugs in the system. It hadn't been thought out, and it was a black eye for the Obama administration. Uh, if, if you look at the sheer competence of the Johnson administration in not only passing, the, get, ensuring that those bills were passed and signed into law, but implementing them, that's another thing that Lyndon Johnson should get credit for. Uh, the, the, the vision of, of Medicare is one thing. Putting, putting it into practice is something altogether different. Desegregating hospitals, getting rid of Jim Crow facilities, ensuring that that uh, you know the 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 racists who are in southern states who haven't become any less racist because of the, uh, the bill passed through is adhering to the law. All that stuff took real doing, and that's another another uh, big accomplishment of Lyndon Johnson's great society. And is that just building the administration, hiring the right people? Like, how do you do that? I think it takes an understanding as as Lyndon Johnson had of not only the legislative process, but of how government and how power works. Mm. And he was able to work the system behind the scenes so often. I mentioned those telephone tapes. You can hear him talking to different people, getting him to do the things that that he wanted to do. So if it took a governor ensuring that, you know, that, uh, uh, that, 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 that hospitals were desegregated under the the provisions of Medicare, he would do that. He would call them and implore them to get it done. And he would cajole or or threaten or flatter or promise or whatever it took to get that person to his side. That's part of the genius of LBJ. So we, we hit on Medicare and civil rights, but there was so much more to the Great Society. Um, I was kind of thinking about this last night. LBJ is the one president who actually did so much winning. You get tired of hearing the long list before <laughs> you reach the end. Uh, so would you identify like a three or four other most impactful items from LBJ's domestic agenda? Well, let me just give you an example. In, uh, in 1965, I mentioned he rides into uh, the presidency in his own right with the biggest electoral mandate in history yeah, yeah. and understands he needs to get as much through from the Great Society as possible because he knows his political capital is going to, to fade quickly, as it does invariably for any president. That's just a, uh, a p- part of the, the bargain. So in that one year, you have the following landmark laws put into place. And these are just some of them, bear in mind. Yeah. It's the Elementary and Secondary Education Act and the Higher Education Act. Um, and the, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, if, through that alone, that federal aid education for the first time, we see uh, high school graduation rates increase by 25, uh, make that uh, by a third wow. in just five years. Higher Education Act, we see 
college matriculation rates increased by 25% in five years. So they're, they're fundamentally, anyone who went to, to school on a Pell Grant mm. knows how important the, the Higher Education Act is. It makes college infinitely more accessible for many Americans, just as the GI Bill did mm, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. it. Uh, you have the Immigration Act of 1965. We talked about the civil rights legislation from Lyndon Johnson, and we often see that with an African-American face or an Hispanic face. But it's important to note that racism also stood at our borders. Yeah, yeah. And we had in place the National Origins Act, which prevented uh, non-Western Europeans from immigrating to the United States in large numbers. It was really a racistly, you know, it was a nativist act and racist uh, in in essence. And that is struck down and, and fundamentally the heart and soul of America changes mm. as a consequence of the Immigration Act. So many people who have contributed uh, tremendously to our society would have not uh, been able to come to America, but for the Immigration Act. So you have the Immigration Act, you have the Highway Beautification Act, right. you have the Clean Air Act, you have the Clean Water Act, you have the creation of Head Start uh, of the um, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts. You have the um, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting one or two. I apologize, but like a, it's a long me. list. <laughs> it's a long list. But you also have yeah. the Voting Rights Act, yeah. which has uh, largely been stripped. Uh, it has been gutted in recent years, yeah. but it is enormously important. Again, I, I talked about America living up to its creed of uh, all men are created equal, but we are a democracy. Right. Uh, and if we are an egalitarian nation and call ourselves a democracy, you have to have access to the ballot box. And so many African-Americans were denied that right. Uh, and the Civil Rights or Civil Rights Act ends Jim Crow and the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. essentially ends systemic voting oppression, utterly transformational laws. When you see LBJ's legislative success, it's tempting to say, why didn't every president after him just use that playbook? Like, why why didn't they? Why haven't presidents since been able to just like dust off the LBJ playbook and, and do that? Well, there's a backlash. I mean, Republicans didn't do it because it was demonized. Mm. They looked at it as as socialism, as government overreach. Uh, Ronald Reagan, very effective, who was who is a, a a vocal opponent of Medicare, and says that it mm. will. It will transform our society into socialism. He makes these records for the American Medical Association, which women play in their homes and in their sewing circles and coffee groups, warning of the evils of Medicare. That's Ronald Reagan in 1965 sounding those messages. Uh, But Reagan essentially uh, launches this, uh, we, we forget now, but very populist uh, um, uh, political campaign for office based on the condemnation of the great society and the ills of government overreach. And I think that 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 message continues to resound today. So no president has been able to be as ambitious domestically as Lyndon Johnson was. You have to remember too, Kenny, that faith in government, uh, when Lyndon Johnson uh, took the presidency in 19. Uh, right. 1964 right. was at an all-time high. Yeah, seventy-four percent of Americans believed in their government, believed yeah. in the 
the power of government, but believed that government was here for the good. Yeah. That number now is at about 15%, Ooh. largely because of the nativism and populism and anger uh, of the of the you know the MAGA movement and yeah. and Donald Trump. Uh, so it was a fundamentally different time. But I think if you look at the presidency of Joe Biden, it's probably the most uh, Joe Biden has pushed through the most transformational legislative agenda since Lyndon Johnson, mm. and should get mm-hmm. due credit for that. What lessons in leadership can we learn from LBJ and how he marshaled his forces behind the Great Society? You know, there's a lot you can learn from LBJ, but I think uh, that, um, you know, that y- y- leadership comes in different forms. Uh, and Franklin Roosevelt is, you know, bl- belongs in the pantheon of president. <laughs> yeah. He hits leadership really on all cylinders. He was an a- excellent at getting things done behind the scenes. He worked hard. He had a vision for what America should be. He had a great image that he projected to the American people and an ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. I'd say that if you look at Lyndon Johnson, he had those former gifts, but he didn't have the latter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an expert at getting things done behind the scenes. He worked like a Trojan uh, <laughs> in order to get his legislative agenda passed, knowing that, again, as I mentioned repeatedly, that that political capital would fade over time. So you've got to exploit it. You've got to ex- expend it while you've got and he knew that. Um, what Lyndon Johnson fell short on is image. He did not project an effective image to the American people. You could say the same thing about Joe Biden today. Uh, he is de- Joe Biden is deceptively effective. If you look at his presidency, even you know, in, in objectively, it's remarkable what he has co- accomplished in a very short period of time, just like it was for Lyndon Johnson. But he projects a very poor image to the American people. Uh, and I think it also goes without saying that Lyndon Johnson's presidency is deeply compromised by the unpopular war in Vietnam, which I know my my friend and colleague, Mark Lawrence, talked to you about in a previous episode. Yeah. I, I, I get the sense that LBJ felt frustrated at the end of his time of why am I not being appreciated for everything I've done here on this domestic front? And I'm curious, why, why wasn't that more appreciated? You know, why was he so unpopular? You mentioned Vietnam, but uh, the, the reaction you talk about and all that, where was the level of, of appreciation or why was it not there for all these bills he has passed that has had such transformational change in people's lives? You know, I think in the immediate years after his presidency, it was the the fact that, that Vietnam shrouded his presidency, the mm. dark cloud of Vietnam took a long time to dissipate because passions about Vietnam ran so deep. Mm -hmm. There were so many Americans who resisted the war, knowing that the draft was in place and that young men um, had a, 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 you know, a a chance of being drafted into a war that they didn't necessarily want to fight. So those, those passions around Vietnam and, and LBJ's uh, inability to tell the truth about the war uh, I think severely hurt his image. For whatever reason, Vietnam does not stick to John F. Kennedy and right. it doesn't stick to Richard Nixon to the extent that it it can or should. It falls on Lyndon Johnson, and that's rightful to some degree because he's the one. He was the chief uh, architect of the war, insofar as he's the one who escalated it more than any other. 
So again, I do think that's a rightful part of his legacy. But for civil rights in particular, which I think is the dominant part, that's the most important part of Lyndon Johnson's legacy. Other people get credit. John F. Kennedy, because of his martyrdom, gets the credit for civil rights. Martin Luther King, who waged the civil rights movement, gets the credit for uh, civil rights. Your listeners, I'm sure, Kennedy, are pretty sophisticated in the ways of history and would know that you know it takes more than Martin Luther King and a powerful social movement to make social change. It takes laws yeah. that change our society to do that. And in order to, to, to move lawmakers, you have to get the willingness of them to push things through, sometimes at their political peril. Lyndon Johnson did just that, working hand in hand with Martin Luther King, knowing that that social movement, that very powerful social movement would raise awareness among Americans about the need for civil rights to citizens that were fundamentally being oppressed. And as Americans, there's this great conversation he had has with Martin Luther King about the, the importance of passing voting rights. And he says, uh, if you, he tells uh, Martin Luther King, if you get your, your people, the people in your movement, to show the very worst of voting suppression. Mm -hmm. And this is a direct quote. Uh, There isn't a a fellow who doesn't do anything all day, but follow or drive a tractor who won't say that isn't right. That isn't fair. Right. He, he had faith that the American people if exposed to, to that injustice would say, this is not, this is fundamentally un-American. And he was right. It was a gamble that he took and (laughs) he was right. So that, that takes enormous political courage. But I think that uh, it, it has taken a while, Kenny, but historians will put Lyndon Johnson in the, in the top quarter of all presidents, even with the, the weight of Vietnam weighing it down, weighing his legacy down. Uh, and I think that the, the, the legacy of Lyndon Johnson started to change. I think he started becoming the civil rights president rightfully, yeah. probably here at the LBJ Library 10 years ago. When we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Civil Rights Act mm, with mm-hmm. President and Mrs. Obama, George W. and Laura Bush, Jimmy Carter, and Bill Clinton in attendance, uh, along with the great civil rights leaders, uh, yeah. Andrew Young, Julian Bond, John Lewis, Bernice King was here, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, so many people who had helped to wage the movement were here. I think paying tribute to the political courage of, of Lyndon Johnson, I think that may have been a turning point. And you, you definitely make a great point. His legacy is so murky for so many people. There, there are so many folks who have, as I said, told me he's a racist or civil rights. That was JFK or LBJ. He's just Vietnam, you know. So I'm curious, what do you think is the emerging legacy of LBJ? What do you think that is? You know, I'll, I'll answer the question, but I think it, it, it bears – one thing you have to keep in mind is is that uh, Lyndon Johnson dies four years and two right. days after leaving the Oval Office. Uh, Harry Truman left the presidency in 1953 enormously unpopular with a, an approval rating of 34%. It might have been 32%, but it was less than a third – uh, around a third of the American people approved of his job performance. I mean, that, that is enormously low. But he lived for 20 years. Uh, and was able to to see things like Lyndon Johnson pay tribute to him for Medicare. And we began to reevaluate him because he was still among us. Mm. You're seeing a rehabilitation for George W. Bush for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, he was uh, with the MAGA Republican movement. You see George Bush talk about 
what conservative policy should be, mm. what, what compassionate conservatism might look like. And I think his legacy is evolving. Had Lyndon Johnson lived I, at, for 20 years as Truman did, mm-hmm. I think he would have seen a reassessment in his lifetime. But as mm-hmm. it stood, it took much longer. I think the emerging legacy is that this is a, you know, without question, he is the civil rights president. There is nobody with the possible exception of of Abraham Lincoln, right. who does as much yeah. to uplift people of color in this country and make good on our most sacred promise of separate but equal, but Lyndon Johnson. He is the guy who does it. Uh, any American who really delves into history will have to give Johnson, maybe begrudgingly, that credit. I think that is the dominant part of Lyndon Johnson's legacy. If you look at how important race is in defining the very best and worst of our history mm-hmm. uh, and look at the mammoth impact that that Lyndon, and we only scratch, scratch the surface in what we just talked about, Ken. Right, right. Uh, the mammoth impact he has on it. You can't help but give him credit for those enormous strides. And again, despite the weight of Vietnam, put him in the, if not the pantheon of presidents, in that near great group with with figures like uh, Theodore Roosevelt and mm, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and Harry Truman and and John F. Kennedy and others. If you've enjoyed this interview with Mark and want to learn more about LBJ, please consider visiting the LBJ Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. Check out his wonderful book, Indomitable Will: LBJ and the Presidency. Uh, they, he's also got a podcast at the library. This will sound familiar if you just listened to the episode of Mark Lawrence with the bark off. Uh, check that out. It's all about presidential history. And coming out later this year, Mark Updegrove will have a PBS series live from the LBJ Library with Mark Updegrove. Keep an eye out for that later this year. Thank you for your time, Mark. Kenny, great being with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon, or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, let's talk immigration policy. Friend of the show, Harold Holzer, has a new book out just this month looking at Abraham Lincoln's approach to and impact on American immigration. What did the GOP think of immigrants 160 years ago? An interview with Holzer on his latest book, Brought Forth on This Continent, next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.